Father, we come to you uh, on behalf of our brother and sister, Jim and Kathy Criswell. Thank you so much for this dear couple, for their faithfulness to us as a body, and for their love for our church, for their love for um, this community of believers, which expresses their deep love for you and uh, the way in which they serve and care for the people in this congregation. Lord, we are just so grateful. And We thank you for sparing Jim's life, and we thank you that even though he had chest pains, he was able to get to the ER. We do pray, along with Kathy's request here, that he would be able to avoid heart surgery, that whatever might be done to treat whatever he's experiencing could be done without any sort of invasive procedure. Lord, we commit him into your care and into your hands. Lord, we pray that they would be filled with peace and faith and know that their brothers and sisters are bearing this burden with them even this morning. And we pray that you would carry them up on eagles' wings and, and, and be with them in this valley um, as you promised and as we even sung about this morning and as we were, we were even reassured uh, in the reading of this psalm by our brother Bobby. Lord, would you deliver them from this distress and would you raise them up out, off of their sickbed, especially Jim, off of his sickbed? And would you grant Kathy endurance and patience as she seeks to care for him in ways that would supplement all that the doctors or nurses and nurses are no doubt doing and would you return them safely and healthily to us soon lord we we pray that you would spare our dear brother and sister with us for many more years and thank you for their lives thank you for their testimonies thank you that we are in the same family together with them and we pray that you would abundantly pour out your blessing on them even this moment even this day we ask in christ's name amen all right, well, let's turn to Psalm 59 this morning. I think a appropriate psalm in light of what we've been singing and even what we just prayed about David's request that God would deliver him from his distress. We're going to look at three different aspects of this psalm this morning. We're going to look at David's condition, David's cry, and then David's confidence. Now, just so you know, for the next eight weeks, we are going to be pausing in a sense, our series in First Samuel, and looking at the Psalms that David wrote during this period, the period of life that we've been learning about in First Samuel, specifically the Psalms he wrote from chapter 19 through chapter 23, which as most commentators would agree are at least eight Psalms, uh, if not more, we're just going to consider the eight that were for sure were written during this time period. Some historical setting is difficult to ascertain, but sometimes the psalm gives us its historical setting, like this morning, which enables us to understand where it comes from. So we're going to look, first of all, this morning at David's condition in Psalm 59. Now, the whole historical setting was read for you um, by Bobby at the beginning of the sermon, and it comes out of 1 Samuel 19. Specifically, we know in 1 Samuel 19 that David has already been on the run within the house of Saul. Now, the last couple of weeks, he's journeyed outside of Israel and begun, well, not sometimes into Philistine territory, but even outside the palace walls because Saul has been hunting down his life now that he knows that David has been anointed king. So David has fled from Saul, though not only outside of his house, but also within his own household. In 1 Samuel 19, he saw Chuck a spear at him, and David was able to avoid uh, that spear attack by Saul when he was playing the harp for him. However, Saul's anger was not quenched, and he continued to pursue David, although less directly at times. He enlisted other people to do it, do the attacking, especially when it was going to be more of a public nature. And this time in 1 Samuel 19, we read that he pursued him by calling out men who were in 
allegiance with Saul to surround David's house in hope of killing him as he emerged from there in the morning. Now, being late in the evening, they were to wait outside all evening since if they were to force entry into the house at night, that may have endangered the life of Saul's daughter to whom David was married. And Saul had not right, quite reached the point here or descended into madness enough that he would result in killing his own children. But we will see that definitely becomes the case later on. So instead of rushing into his home to seize him late in the evening, the men would wait outside for him to come out in the morning and they, were, they would seize him then and they would kill him. You might think, well, what in the world? Would they seize him for it in the daylight? I mean, isn't that going to be a public display? Wouldn't it be better to seize him at night? Well, in some sense, it would be better to seize him at night. We could understand why that would be the case. But David's not going to come out most likely late into the evening. And in the morning, if he were to come out, remember, this is in the palace area. There's not. It's not like he's coming out in the morning in the middle of the town square where everybody would see him. So there would be some measure of privacy even in that seizing of David were he to come out in the morning. So we see the essence of this plot by Saul and his men described by David in this psalm in a couple of different ways. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is the way David describes what these men are doing as they wait around the house for him. Each evening, David writes, they come back, that is these men who seek his life, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They are here. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. Now look down at verse 14. He says it again. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs, prowling about the city. Verse 15, they wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. So David has an image for what these men are doing. He likens them to growling dogs that are prowling around the city by night looking for someone or something to eat. They're arrogant. They're self-assured. They want to devour David. They're getting hungrier and hungrier by the moment, eager for his blood. They're prowling. They're howling. They're growling. That's a rhyme. Prowling, howling, and growling. For his blood, they're like wild animals who haven't ate for days, and they're looking to be fed. That's how David describes this scene. It's really an ominous picture. It's a, it's a horrific picture. But notice how David describes these men and ultimately Saul in non-metaphorical ways. He's using the metaphor of dogs to describe them here. But, but notice what he says they're actually doing. First of all, he says they are enemies. They are enemies. In verse 1 and verse 10... David describes them as enemies. He says, deliver me from my enemies. Oh, my God. Verse one and verse 10, he says, God, let me look in triumph on my enemies. This is parallel with what David says in verse one. He says, deliver me from those who rise up against me. So they are those who, according to verse three, lie and wait for his life and stir up strife against David indicating that their attack of him is both active and passive. They're not only directly attacking him, but they're seeking to bring others into this as well. That's what Saul's doing. 
He's not only directly tried to attack David himself by throwing a spear at him, but he's also enlisted other men to take part in this attack on David as well. So these men are obviously in hot pursuit. Verse 4 mentions that they are ready to run and make ready. They have planned and plotted. They have schemed and strategized for David's death. They have set themselves against David. They have risen up in opposition to him as the Lord's anointed. And they have positioned themselves to take his life. But this isn't the only reason they're, or the only way that they're described. The deeper reason is given secondly. Second, they're evildoers. They're not only David's enemies, they're doing evil against God. The root of their pursuit of David and the reason that they're his enemy is that they have a desire to do evil, especially murder. Verse 2 describes these men as, quote, those who work evil. Verse 5 describes them as those who treacherously plot evil. Verse 2 also calls them bloodthirsty. See, their evil is seeking to express itself in the murder of the Lord's anointed. And this isn't the first time we see evil men taking it upon themselves to try to kill the Lord's anointed. We know it occurs in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus being innocent, being unable to charge, be charged with wrong, you can imagine him taking these words on his lips, can't you? As he approaches the cross, deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. But dear ones, they weren't the only ones in their day who were pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ to his death. These weren't the only ones in Saul's day who, in some unique sense, desired to take the life of their king. Were we not at one time, beloved, among those who would be called enemies of God, evildoers? Were we not those who were against the Lord and his anointed, Jesus Christ? Did you and me not at one time see Jesus as a threat to your self-sovereignty, to your kingship over your own life? How does the Bible describe us? In our natural condition. Well it describes us a whole lot more. Like Saul's men here. Than like David. Romans 5.10. For if while we were. Enemies. We were reconciled to God. By the death of his son. Colossians 1.21. Says not only. Romans 5.10 just said we're enemies. Well Colossians 1.21 says we were once evildoers. And you who once were alienated. And hostile in mind. Doing what? Evil deeds. That was us. Before we came to Christ, we were enemies of God. We were evildoers. We were put in the same category that David puts these men here. You don't really think you're good, do you? I hope not. See, our sin was what put the Son of God to death. We are His murderers, albeit indirectly. Before becoming Christians... It could have been said to us what was said to the crowd during the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.36 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. 
See, before becoming Christians, our nature was like that of those who put Jesus to death. It was this very thing that the first martyr Stephen preached to the crowd before he was stoned to death. We read in Acts 58, 51, Stephen's sermon, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Among the crowd was one such enemy, one such evildoer, the future apostle Paul, who consented to Stephen's execution. We read in Acts 7, verse 54 and following. Now, when they heard these things that Stephen was saying, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him like dogs howling. Then they cast him out of the city like they did David or the Lord Jesus or Stephen and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of his execution. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Would any among us say that we wouldn't have been like the apostle Paul here, Saul here? And yet, miraculously, Saul was shown mercy as an enemy of God and as an evildoer. We read in Acts chapter 9, the very next chapter, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul! Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Then we read in Acts 9, 20 to 22. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Paul's reputation became what he summarizes in Galatians 1 as, quote, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul's lesson here for us, dear ones, if he can be saved as an enemy of God and as an evildoer against the Lord Jesus Christ, so can we. That's 1 Timothy 1, chapter 12 to 16. Listen to Paul's own testimony about that. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What do we learn from that? Well, dear one, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I hope you hear the good news that is embedded in that tale. The good news that those who are enemies of God can be reconciled to God. That the good news that those who are evildoers can be transformed from being alienated from God to being children of God. All by simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and turning from our rebellion against him and entrusting ourselves to him.
So if you're here this morning and you haven't done that, I plead with you this morning to do that. I plead with you to recognize the fact that in without Christ, I am an enemy of God. I am one who does evil deeds. I am one who tries to maintain my own sovereignty over my own life, just like Saul did. I'm no different in heart from him. As an unbeliever, I would have the same exact tendencies if I were in his position. The only reason I haven't done it is because I'm not him and I'm not there. But because of Christ, because of what he did, the very one we killed was the very one that God raised to life for our salvation, that he might show us mercy and receive us into his everlasting kingdom. If Saul can be forgiven as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, what reason would you think he couldn't forgive you? Nevertheless, David did have real enemies, human ones. So how does he respond to them? How does he respond to Saul and to his men? Well, having looked at David's condition, seeing where he is and how he's surrounded on all sides by men who desire to take his life, let's look secondly at what he does about it. David's cry. David doesn't immediately turn to trying to create a great military strategy to combat Saul's attack. He doesn't try to enlist a group of men to go out and kill the men around the house. He doesn't really do anything according to 1 Samuel 19. But we do see something here in Psalm 59 that he does. He cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord in his distress, which is what should always be the first instinct of every one of us when we're in distress. So two aspects of David's cry. First of all, David cries for God's deliverance from his enemies. David cries for God's deliverance from his enemies. First, he calls on the Lord, notice in verses 4 and 5, to awake. He says at the end of verse 4, awake, come to meet me and see. Now, God doesn't sleep. David's using a metaphor here. It's late at night. Most people are in bed, right? So he's calling on God as though God were asleep to awake. To what he says in verse 5, rouse yourself, get up. Now, God is not asleep at the wheel. This plea rather shows the earnestness of David's cry, not the absence of God's attention. He calls upon God to engage with his condition. He cries out to the Lord to pay attention to what he's doing. Now, how does he want God to engage? Two ways. First of all, he says in verse 1, deliver me. Get me out of here. He cries out in verse 2 for God, save me. Save me. He wants God to rescue him out of this present distress. He says in verse 1 at the end, protect me. So he not only wants God to deliver him, but he wants God to defend him. Literally, he wants God to put him out of reach. That's what protect is conveying. Put me out of reach of their attack. Put me in a place where they will be unable to get to me. So David cries out for God's deliverance from his enemy. Secondly, David cries for God's devastation on his enemies. David cries for God's devastation on his enemies. He not only calls on God to deliver him, but to punish those who are pursuing him in this way, who are committing this evil, who have sinned against him. Now, to be sure, David does believe here he is the object of sin, not the perpetrator of sin. And I think reading 1 Samuel 9, we would have to agree. David has done nothing wrong to deserve to be killed at the hands of Saul. He says at the end of verse 3 that there is no transgression or sin of mine 
or no fault of his that is bringing this about. In fact, he's experiencing what Proverbs 29.10 says, bloodthirsty men desire. Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. That's what they're doing. They're seeking the life of one who is blameless in this regard. They're seeking the life of one whose life is upright in this regard. Now notice how he asked God to devastate him. Sorry, to devastate his enemies. In verse 13, he pleads that the Lord will, quote, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. He says in verse 5, he wants God to punish all the nations, to spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. He tells God how he would like this done. Notice verse 11. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter or wander by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our help and shield. Now what's going on here? He says, God consumed them in your wrath, in verse 13. He says in verse 5, God don't spare them. Then he says in verse 11, God spare them. Well, he doesn't quite say spare. He says don't kill them. Don't kill them immediately. And then he uses the word totter. Make them totter by your power. That's literally wander. He wants them, in a sense, his enemies, to experience justice at the hands of God. And in David's perception, it would be unjust for them to get the death penalty right away. He wants God, rather, to let them experience what he's experiencing. To be without family. To be, with, to be under threat of your life being taken from you. To be forced out of your comfort zone and made to wander in the wilderness until God eventually takes you down. So far from a cry for injustice that we often think, wow, David, you're asking God to kill people. That's pretty unjust. He's actually crying out for justice. He's crying out for God to demonstrate his justice that matches the injustice that David has received at their hands. Just as David's enemies have pursued him into the wilderness, so he wants God to pursue them into the wilderness and then bring them down. Now, he's not merely crying out for this kind of devastation because they're his enemies. He's not merely doing it for his own sake. We get this in two different ways in this psalm. We might think, well, that's kind of arrogant of David. I mean, who does he think he is? Who do you think he is can go about just crying out judgment on people that are just because they don't like him? I mean, should we do that? Doesn't Jesus say, love your enemies? I mean, are we supposed to be doing that? We'll get to that in a minute. But notice, he's not merely crying out for this kind of devastation because they're his enemies by alone. Now, they are his enemies, but that's not the only reason he gives God to destroy these people. He's doing it, first of all, because it would be the just and right thing to do. Notice verse 12. Notice verse 12. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter. So it's not merely, hey, they don't like me. It's they're sinners. They have sinned with their mouths. They have sinned in their pride. They have cursed you. They have uttered lies about you and about me. Additionally, he says you should judge them for their sin, but also for your glory. Look at verse 13. That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. 
That they might know that God is the king. That God has chosen me as his anointed. I am not the one who deserves this. They are attacking me because they attack God. Because they hate what God has done and what God has spoken over me. Now, let's get to the real question here. What are we to make of such cries for devastation on God's enemies? We are going to encounter this again and again in these psalms that we're going to consider. So we might as well handle it right now on the front end so we don't have to address it in every single sermon. Are we to pray this way? Aren't we called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, not against those who persecute us? Didn't Jesus teach us to pray that way? How do we make sense of such prayers then? And how do they align with the fact that in our sin, we deserve the same kind of judgment that they do? Well, if you love the Psalms, and I'm sure you do, you won't get very far before you run into prayers for God to enact justice, petitions for God to exact vengeance on the enemies of his people, One such person that loved the Psalms, even wrote a book on them called Reflections on the Psalms, was C.S. Lewis. And nevertheless, he had a major problem with these kinds of petitions. He called phrases like this that David prays for God's judgment on his enemies, quote-unquote, devilish, naive, diabolical, given to pettiness and vulgarity. He believed they were, quote-unquote, vindictive hatred, that they were contemptible, that they were full of festering, gloating, undisguised passions that can in no way be condoned or approved. So he just said, we better not pray those things. We'd be sinning if we did. So was it, did David sin when he did? He said, no fault, no sin of mine. While I love C.S. Lewis, I really do, and I... I love many of the things he wrote. I do writes. I do have to beg to differ with him on this issue. Over the years, I've considered different ways of reframing or reinterpreting the what they're called the imprecatory psalms. It, it comes from the word imprecation, which means calling down a curse on or calling for God to enact justice on. Some psalms are filled with these things, and we call them imprecatory psalms. They are asking God to judge His enemies. So that, so now you have a new word in your vocabulary. If you didn't know that one, that's, I hope, the, only, the biggest word I'll use this morning. But now you know what the idea of imprecatory or imprecation means. It means calling upon God to judge his enemies. And I, we should always feel a little bit of a, of a pinch when we read these. It's appropriate for us to, to feel a little bit of a pinch when we read. Because we recognize in ourselves that we're sinners and we deserve God's judgment too. But here's why we can't get around it the way C.S. Lewis proposes. Because Jesus himself quotes and prays the imprecatory psalms. And I don't think C.S. Lewis would say, and in fact I know he wouldn't, that Jesus was sinning to do so. That he was guilty of devilish, naive, diabolical pettiness. That he was guilty of festering, gloating, undisguised passion that, was condo- that should not be condoned or approved. No, I think he would say, that was right for Jesus to do, but we're not Jesus. Well, hold on. It seems strange to claim that because of the coming of Christ that we should no longer sing or pray the very songs that Christ had no trouble singing or praying. What's more, the Bible ends with a book that includes... The righteous in heaven calling out for judgment on God's enemies. In God's very presence. The martyrs. 
who are crying out for God to avenge their blood by killing the people who have taken their lives. If that happens in heaven and that happens on the lips of Christ, that should happen in the church in this age. Now, there should be no strutting. There should be no gloating. I agree with Lewis. There should be no pettiness. There should be no vulgarity in those petitions. They should always be marked by a degree of sobriety and humility with them. But nevertheless, we should pray these prayers. Now, what's happening in these Psalms? What's happening when we're, when we're praying imprecatory prayers? Well, we're begging God to interrupt the assaults of the wicked to vindicate the suffering of the righteous and to keep his promise to enact judgment on all that would threaten the sacredness of his kingdom. That's a good prayer. God created a good world as a cosmic temple for his presence. And humans were intended to be kings and priests who serve and guard this good world. And we failed at this, this task by disobeying God's commandment. And yet God promised the one, that one of Eve's offspring would come and crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the Old Testament tells the story of Israel as God's son be, to be, being called to be a royal priesthood that was tasked with following God's commands and purging evil from their midst in anticipation of the day when all the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, King David, as a representative of the people, was, prepared, was to prepare the people of God for the construction of the temple. And those who pray alongside David share the same concerns. For the glory of your name, God, for the justice of your righteous rule, God, for the preservation of the purity on behalf of the innocent, answer our prayers. Now, fast forward to the time of the church. And we now pray these songs alongside the son of David, Jesus, who alone is perfectly righteous. In him, his prayers become our prayers and our prayers remain in line with the covenant promises of God. Thus, these prayers today become a means by which we pray the Psalms against the evil one, against Satan and all that he's seeking to do against the kingdom of Christ. It's a way of guarding us as the people of God and leaning forward to the day when the entire earth will be filled with God's presence and purged from all evil. As Trevin Wax says about the imprecatory Psalms, quote, the cursing Psalms are a peaceful petitionary participation in God's promise to strike the seed of the serpent and restore the peace of the garden. So these prayers are so appropriate as they become cries of us who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Far from being mere confessions of our own unjust wishes, they are expressions of God's just will. Every time we pray, your kingdom come, blended within that is an imprecatory prayer. We are praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. To push back the effects of sin and Satan. And to unleash his righteousness in the world. We pray for God to stop the schemes of the devil. We're pleading for the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. We want to see believers reflect the character of the kingdom. Sinners converted to join the kingdom. Violent enemies interrupted who oppose the kingdom. All as we wait for the day of Christ's return. So in and alongside Jesus then, we do pray for God to enact justice. Yes, and remember mercy in the midst of it. Of course. 
rather than take vengeance into our own hands. Do you know what releases us from the desire to take revenge or and, and that can free us from bitterness against those who have wronged us? Well, it's in part believing Romans 12 that God will avenge, but it's also praying the imprecatory Psalms. That releases us, ironically, to love our enemies way better. Because <laughs> we are taking it to God and not to them. It is a great act of love to pray for God to save those who oppose him or take them out. Show mercy, show justice. If you're not going to show mercy, show justice. Take them out. They do not honor you in the world that you have made. Now, again, we don't pray that from our high horse. We are those who should be taken out. <laughs> we should have been taken out. We were shown mercy. So that shapes the way we pray. We, we pray in your judgment, Lord, remember mercy. Your judgment has a long wick. Your mercy has a hair trigger. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we need to be the same way. But nevertheless... God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 5. And even though that anger is slow to anger, it is anger, and it is just. And so we don't need to be more righteous than God is. We need to accept God on his terms and pray against Satan and all the things that lead in his direction. We pray that God would stop the schemes of the wicked with hopes that he might exercise mercy and judgment by rescuing the evildoer from sin through repentance or by stopping the schemes that lead to injustice altogether, by taking out the schemer. We pray against Satan and the spiritual forces that war against us, that seek to desecrate our earthly temples by leading us into unfaithfulness. And we even direct these prayers against our own sin, asking God to help us be ruthless in purging our own hearts from evil and temptation. You can pray these prayers against your remaining sin, and you should, for defeat this wicked enemy that still lives within me. Yes, this enemy has been conquered, but it still remains and dogs my heels, growls, howls, prowls at me every day. Break its teeth in its mouth, God. We can pray those things. We should pray those things against our own sin. And so, with the martyrs, who even now cry out for vindication, we too say, come Lord Jesus, make this world new. That's what we're doing when we're praying these sorts of psalms. Well, that was a long time, I understand, to, to talk about that issue. But again, because it's going to resurface a number of times in these psalms, I thought it would be good to just camp on it for a moment, talk about these sorts of things so that when we come to them, we have a category for understanding how to interpret them. So now, thirdly and finally, we come in these closing moments to David's confidence. We've seen David's condition, David's cry, now David's confidence. Having described his condition, which is surrounded by enemies and evildoers, and having observed his cry for God to deliver him from his enemies and to put devastation on his enemies, where does David ultimately place his hope? Where is his ultimate confidence? Well, you know the answer to that. We'll see it again and again. It's in God himself. We see this expressed again in two ways. First of all, God is my defender. God is my defender. Notice verse 8 through 10. But you, O Lord, even as these enemies and evildoers prowl around me, you, O Lord, laugh at them. Think of Psalm 2. The nations have set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. What does God do? He laughs at them. You really think this is going to stop me? You really think this is, you really think surrounding this house 
is not something I can handle. No, the Lord laughs at such plots. It says, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look and triumph on my enemies. Notice what he's doing. Even as David's enemies laugh at him, God laughs at the enemies of David, thinking that they can overthrow his sovereign purpose to make David king of Israel. He calls God his strength, his fortress. Now he's living in a room in the king's palace, but he's surrounded by men who want to take his life. But nevertheless, he's so protected because God is his strength and God is his fortress. He's on the lookout right now. He says, I will watch for you. I will see how you will preserve me. I will look out and see how you're going to act on behalf. How God will let me look on the triumph of my enemies. He's confident he's getting out. He doesn't know how. But he's confident that God's going to get him out. So he rests in God's sovereign faithfulness and in his steadfast love. And dear one, you can do the same thing. And we must do the same thing. And whatever distress we're in, we count on God as our strength. We count on God as our fortress. And we say, I'm going to watch and wait, Lord. What are you going to do in this situation? Second, God is not only my defender, David says, but God is my delight. See, he doesn't just trust God. He sings to God. Look at verses 16 and 17. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, oh God, are my, are my fortress. For the God who shows me steadfast love. See, he calls God his strength again, twice. He calls God his fortress again, twice. He calls God on God's steadfast love again, twice. But over all of that, three times, he mentions that he will sing to the Lord. Now, I know we pray when we're in trouble, but how often do we sing when we're in trouble? You sing? You should sing. I should sing. Sing in the face of your distress. Sing the happiest song you can find about God. And if you can't sing it, it may be because you don't believe it. Or it may be because you need to change the song and find something that is still true, that still reflects something of your heart. Because it's not we're not talking here about, oh, just, you know, buck up. Be happy, clappy, even though you're groaning. No, he's not groaning here. He's groaning. He's describing things in real ways. He's saying dogs are around me. They're seeking my life. But there's a greater reality. God is on the throne. Calling on the Lord, dear one, expresses your trust in the Lord. But if you sing, it expresses your delight in him. Singing is tuned to the affections of the heart. Not just the faith of the will. You please God when you exercise faith in him and endure. You please God more when you sing in the face of it. Because when you sing, you are delighting in God above your circumstances. You can endure your circumstances by faith. But you can, you, you, what reveals delight in God is when you sing in them. Say, I'm not much of a singer. Sing in private. Ain't nobody listening to you. Get in your car. You know, just sing to the Lord. Calling on God expresses our faith in him, but singing expresses our love for him. 
And we need to do both. We need to call on him because we trust in him. And we need to sing to him because we love him. David sings because of God's steadfast love for him. And has not God sown such steadfast love for you? You got nothing to sing about? What enables us to get through any and everything in our, in our lives is delighting in God's steadfast love. It's knowing and believing that he's working all things together for our good, that his thoughts and ways toward us are only good. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, the psalm says, Psalm 84. But that he pursues us, like Psalm 23 says, with steadfast love and mercy all the days of our life. And so as David cries out to God and expresses his confidence in God, what happens? As he starts singing, God starts working. God's going to get him out of that situation. As he sings. Now, I don't want to push this too far. But try, now, the Lord is sovereign. He does what he wants with our lives, and it's always good. This is not a key to anything. But if you're stuck in a situation that feels impossible... Start singing more in the face of it and see what God does. Just see what God does. And then sometimes the Lord leads us to a place where we rest contentedly in him. And we're confident that he's going to work. And we get to the point where we almost care if the situation doesn't change. And then he changes it. <laughs> like we're, we learn to like be content in him. And then he sweetly takes the situation away. It's like the trial did its work. The testing produced its fruit. Now you're out of it, you know? So this is what happens to David. His situation does change. He is delivered. God answers his prayer. He's protected by God. He's delivered from his enemies. They do not take his life. How? First Samuel 19, 12 to, 12 to 18. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped. Is that the way you expected God to answer that prayer? <laughs> Not the way I expected. I thought God would open up the roof and send a rope down and pull him out. No, that's not the way God chose to deliver him. How did God choose to deliver him? How did God choose to protect him? Through his wife's half-truth, maybe full-out lie, lowering him out of a window and making a mannequin in his bed. God has his ways, dear one. Do not box God in, in terms of the way or the form his deliverance will take. He sends manna in the wilderness. What kind of craziness is that? He sends streams in the desert. What kind of craziness is that? He parts the sea. He walks on water. He feeds thousands with a boy's lunch. A man on the cross saves the world. And the tomb is still empty. God has his ways. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And as 2 Peter 2.9 summarizes, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Boy, does he ever. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Psalm 59. Thank you for the confidence that it gives us when we face our situations of distress that over which we have no control. We can see no way out. And yet, God, you are the God who delivers. You are the God who protects. You are the God who saves us. You either save us by taking us out of the situation or by taking us to yourself or by preserving us with your own presence in the midst of the distress. Lord, you, are, you never leave us. You never forsake us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Help us to trust you. Help us to cry out to you in our distress. Help us not to just bottle it up or try to fix it ourselves like Saul was doing. But nevertheless, let us cry out to you like David. Let us look to you in hope. Let us rely on your steadfast love and let us sing. Let us sing now in response. No matter what's going on in our lives right now, no matter how we came into this gym this morning, some of us came in crushed, heavy with burdens. Some of us came in light as a feather. Lord, whatever our condition in life, let us lift up our voices now and sing to the God who has shown us and continues to show us such steadfast love and faithfulness. You alone are worthy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.